0: Janelle and I and our family, we have some really good friends visiting. Where are you? You're here somewhere, aren't you? Do you see them? Oh, there they are. So this is Keith Miley and this is Terry Miley um, sitting with with our kids there, some of our kids. And um, Keith and Terry have been our friends for a long time, back when I had hair, which puts us back in my early 20s, just in case you wonder. And um, they've been our closest friends. And they, they are so nice. They have followed us and come to visit us everywhere we've lived. So since we've known them, we've lived in, in multiple states and in multiple countries. And um, we're so glad to be here. And we're so glad they come and visit us here. And we go on vacation with them. And with them, we, and I use the word we in this statement in a very general allegorical way. We enjoy exercise together, <laughs> and um, we enjoy food together, and uh, they like seafood, and I love seafood, and so when they, when they arrived on Thursday, we talked about what, what are we going to eat together, and we talked about seafood, and so we came up with this outstanding plan to um, enjoy a seafood meal together last night, and uh, yesterday morning when we woke up, we made our ingredient list, and... and and it was, it's going to be an, an Italian meal. And so, in this kind of true Italian way, we're going to eat antipasta and then primi and the secundi and cantarini, all these courses. Italian you eat in multiple courses. And uh, so, Janelle prepared the antipasta, which were these amazing olives, multiple kinds of olives, uh, marinated, and just amazing. They were excellent. And then um, primi was this uh, s- spaghetti pasta de primori, it, it's um, this lovely dish, we made the noodles and uh, Janelle prepared that part too, uh, Terry and the kids prepared dessert, it was strawberry parfait, it's just incredible, and I, my role was secundi, my role was the main dish, it was uh, zuppa de pesky which is, um, anybody know, can anybody translate yeah. fish soup, alright pesky, pescatarians, people who are only pesky, right alright, um Everybody did excellent. (laughs) We're working our way through the meal. It's just wonderful. And we go to eat the soup, and there's a surprise. Now, Zupa de Pesky, we had fish and shrimp and clams and squid. It It was just wonderful. Except when the recipe says one teaspoon of crushed red pepper, and you put in a tablespoon of crushed red pepper, it changes things. So, um, Miriam was even at our house last night enjoying this experience with us. It was awful. My head was sweating. My upper lip was sweating. Um, it, it, we, nobody got seconds. I called Indy, if anybody can eat this, a Sri Lankan can eat this. So I called Indy. He came over and rescued us. He got the results. He said, Yeah, it is a bit hot, which says a lot. <laughs> but I don't, but anyway, um, it's not the first time in my life I've misunderstood something and it caused problems. Now, some of you, maybe you've never misunderstood anything and it caused problems. W- one of the weirdest misunderstandings in my life. ...has been with a word. For some reason, I'm sure it was my brother's fault. You'll all meet him soon on the retreat. I'm convinced it was his fault. But for some reason, as a little boy... ...I was convinced that the word hurricane... ...meant a hippie in a tree. (laughs) Now, I don't know... (laughs) ...it's just one of the weirdest vocabulary mistakes... ...I've ever experienced... I still remember the day as a child where our family was talking about a hurricane. I was born in New Orleans, so you should know what a hurricane is, right? I I spent my adolescence in Houston. You, You should know. I still remember the moment as a child realizing they weren't talking about hippies sitting in trees. But there was this thing called a hurricane that was absolutely different. There are these moments in life where suddenly we realize we've misunderstood something and it matters. Now, one of my favorite philosophers is a guy named Ludwig Wittgenstein. He had this great phrase. He said there are these moments in life where we discover a whole cloud of philosophy condensed in a drop of grammar. He was famous for these aphorisms, these kind of one-line bits of wisdom, that there are these moments in life where an entire an entire story, an entire view of the world, an entire philosophy is condensed into a single drop of grammar. So he's using the metaphor of rain and condensation. That That one little word can carry with it an entire view of the world, you know, and sometimes what we've bootlegged into that word like tablespoon or hurricane can be quite awkward. This is what's going on in our reading this morning from the book of Acts. Eva read to us. If you have a Bible with you I encourage you to find Acts chapter 1. Eva read to us verses 6, 7, and 8. What we're dealing with here is a clash of misunderstandings. And what I'm going to do this morning is show you how the misunderstanding played out in the life of Jesus's followers and how a different misunderstanding that we have attaches itself to some of the same words, but it plays out in a different way in our lives today. Acts chapter 1 verses 6, 7, and 8 This is the followers of Jesus, the apostles. And they ask him a question. Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, to understand why they ask that and what they mean by that, we've got to do a bit of back history. About three years before asking this question, these guys had begun to follow Jesus. The apostles, they had begun to follow Jesus around Galilee, that part of the world, around the Palestine area, and they had had watched Jesus do some remarkable things, miracles. And they had heard him teach in a in an electrifying kind of way. And because of the things that Jesus had said, and because of the things that he had done, they had grown convinced. We heard this in our gospel reading, that he was this figure that God had been promising to the Jews for centuries. That Jesus was, the word they used for it was Messiah. The Messiah. It's a title. It's a word that that describes somebody God had been promising to Israel... It's not Messiah in the adjective sense. It's Messiah in the title sense. He is the one God had been promising to Israel that this figure they called the Messiah would show up and he was going to deliver Israel from her pagan oppressors. And he was going to make Israel the top nation in all of the world. You see, the followers, these followers of Jesus, they had spent the previous three years or so listening to his teachings, observing him do these amazing miracles. But nobody's a blank slate. They had watched all of this. They had listened to all of this with certain assumptions. Why? Where did they get these assumptions from? They got them from their culture from the Jewish culture. And and this is a key part to where I'm going. It's going to feel rather um, teachy at the beginning here, but it's going to get into our lives. See, a culture is a community whose way of living and whose beliefs are shaped by a controlling story. That's a culture. A culture is a community... Whose way of living, its praxis, its behaviors, and its beliefs about the stuff that are most important are shaped by a shared story, a controlling story. And the followers of Jesus, just like us, they lived in a culture. And that culture told a story about the world, about reality, about the past, about the future. And at the heart of the story that their culture told was this idea that Israel had been God's chosen people. And that while they've been suffering at the hands of pagans, one day God was going to send the Messiah to make Israel great again. See, this is, this is how you get national movements. You tap into stories that capture the ethos, the hopes, the fears, and the dreams of a culture. So they had been raised on this, that this Messiah was going to come and he was going to make Israel great again. And the way he was going to make Israel great was by leading Israel to beat up their oppressors and to become the top nation in the world, the superpower. They had a motto for this. Their motto was this phrase, the kingdom of God. That was their motto. One day, God would restore his king to Israel's throne. And when God's chosen king sat on Israel's throne, he would kick the teeth in of all of Israel's enemies and all of the nations of the world would bow before Israel's king. Israel would once again be great again. Now... Remember these apostles, they've been following Jesus for for several years. And as far as they were concerned, when Jesus called them to follow him, they were signing up to be in the inner circle of the greatness of Israel again. So if you've read the Gospels, this is why you find them asking questions like, hey, when it finally happens, can I have a top job in your administration? They believed that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited king. And so much of what he said reaffirmed that view. And so much of what he did reaffirmed it. And so, yeah, they were caught off guard by this business of the cross, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. But now that they've got it behind them, over the last few weeks, they've come to grips with it. And what they've said is, okay, so Jesus is the king returning to Israel's throne, but Rome crucified him. So in other words, Rome rejected that. They said, no, Jesus, you're not the true king of the world. Israel's not the true God's chosen nation of the world. Rome is. Rome is the answer. Pax Romana. The peace of Rome is the gift the world needs caesar is the son of god caesar is the ruler that the world needs because you're trying to get in on that crush you jesus kill you jesus and here's what the disciples had decided over the past 40 days because at the moment we're reading this we're kind of in real time with where they were with regard to easter so Jesus had been raised from the dead about 40 years before this, forty days before this, which is about where we are from Easter. And he had been convincing them he was alive. And what they had done is they had decided, oh, oh, now we get it. The cross was the world's rejection of Jesus, and the resurrection was God's rejection of the world's rejection. See, the world said, no, you're not king. And Jesus said, trump card rose from the dead. So that the resurrection was God vindicating what Jesus had been saying all along. All along, Jesus had been saying, I'm the king, I'm the true king, I'm God's son, I'm, this, I'm, the, I'm the peace this world needs. Rome said, we reject that by killing him because that's the way Rome rejects people. And God rejected Rome's rejection by trumping the cross With the resurrection. So the resurrection was the rejection of the world's rejection. So they're like, oh, okay, we get this now. We understand. It it was confusing. We didn't see it coming. But what we see has happened is that God has vindicated what we, for a minute there, a couple of days, thought we were wrong about. right? So when the crucifixion occurred, they were like, oh, maybe we were wrong about Jesus. And then God vindicated Jesus. All right. Now look in Acts chapter 1. Look at verse 3. So Jesus rises from the dead. He rejects the rejection of the world. And look what he spends the next 40 days doing. Acts chapter 1 verse 3. To them he presented himself alive after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So in between Jesus' resurrection... And what we're going to get to next week, his ascension, he spends those 40 days doing two things. First, convincing them by many proofs that he really is alive. Because that's hard to believe, right? How many of you have ever been to a funeral and the next day, grandma came walking in the room? So it would take some convincing. They were not unsophisticated about life and death. Only arrogant modern people think that pre-modern people didn't understand death. They lived closer to death than we do because the body sat in their house. They were more comfortable with death and its finality than we are. Because they hadn't anesthetized death through multiple drugs and multiple rituals of removal. So for 40 days, Jesus is like, this is really me. This is really a body. I'm really alive. Now, that's what we as a church have been doing. We as a church for the last 40 days have been hammering away, hammering away, saying, Jesus really did rise. And in rising, Jesus' body is the prototype of new creation. We've been doing that for the last 40 days as a church. Now, what's the second thing Jesus spent those 40 days doing? Look again at the end of verse 3. Speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, go, if you have a Bible, look at Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can just listen. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. These are the first recorded words in Mark's gospel of Jesus speaking. It's the first thing Jesus says. Verse 15. Here it is. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God, that was Jesus' passion. He was consumed with it. The first thing he came talking about was the kingdom. After he's risen from the dead, he's got two agendas. Prove to them he really did rise. And keep hammering away on this theme, this subject, this sermon. If you poke Jesus, he would say kingdom. Right? That's just the thing that he was always thinking about that was always on his mind. In fact... Look at the gospel. Look at Acts chapter 1. He's talking to them about the kingdom of God. Go to the very end of Acts, the last chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 28. Look at the very last verse of the book of Acts. Here is Paul under the nose of Caesar in Rome proclaiming the kingdom of God. This is the theme. This is the main idea. This is the motif. This is the Central idea. Here is Jesus talking about the kingdom. Now, here's where the business about hippies and trees and hurricanes and tablespoons and teaspoons matters. They loved hearing him talk about the kingdom. Because what did they think he meant? Finally, we're going to be great again. It tapped into all of their fears and all of their hopes. It tapped into the controlling story that, that gave their culture cohesion. And so, like me, when I was a little boy, when I heard the word hurricane, I thought hippie in the tree. When they hear kingdom, they're bootlegging in a misunderstanding. They've been living out of a story that says Israel has been God's people all along. They've been suffering at the hands of the pagans. They didn't expect Jesus to die this violent death, but he did. And now God proved everybody wrong. He raised him from the dead. And then in verse 6, they said, oh, oh, okay. All right. So since you are the true king, since we dealt with the distraction of the crucifixion, since we got back on track with the resurrection, now that you're here, are you at this time finally going to do the thing the king does restore the kingdom to israel now what is jesus answer to their question is it yes i am or is it no i'm not now here's where the po- here's where it matters for us. I think that many, many Christians, whether they're Catholic or Protestant, Mennonite or Anglican or Lutheran or Presbyterian or Baptist or non-denominational, many, many Christians bootleg in their own Western assumptions And they think Jesus' answer is no. But it's not. You see, Christians live in a Christian culture. And what is a culture? It's a community whose way of living, whose thoughts and beliefs are shaped by a controlling story. And our culture, those of us in this room who are Christians, those of us who've been raised in the church or around the church, we've got a disadvantage here. In fact, I think those of you in this room who are not Christian, who look at Christianity from the outside, I think on this particular part of the Bible, you're in a better place to understand Jesus' answer than those of us who have been in the church long enough to be shaped by the church's story. You see... The Christian culture of the last few centuries has been shaped by a story a lot like the apostles. It's got a mixture of truth and confusion in it. It goes something like this. Somewhere in the Middle Ages, I don't know where, this is something, somebody much smarter than me has a much firmer grasp of the nuanced story of history. They need to tell this story. But somewhere in the Middle Ages... Christians began to shade the meaning of the phrase kingdom of God into the word heaven. Somewhere in the Middle Ages, the church in the West, not the church all over the world, just the church in the ghetto we live in, the church in the West began to take this phrase kingdom of God and do a different mistake with it than the apostles did. The church in the West began... It has a lot to do with Dante's Inferno. It has a lot to do with Kant's um, reason, religion within the bounds of reason. It, it has to do with major kind of movements going on in our culture. But the, the net effect was that the church in the rest, West began to read the phrase kingdom of God as code word for heaven. And when we began to do that, Somewhere, like in my childhood, somebody told me, it had to be my brother, the source of all of my weaknesses. Somewhere, somebody told us in the West, kingdom of God equals heaven, like telling little Aubrey, hurricane equals hippie in a tree. So every time our family said there's a hurricane coming, I gathered up all my stuff to protect it from the hobo who was going to take it. We began to think of kingdom of God as another word for heaven. And here's in what we do. Heaven is something a long way off from us. It's a place that we go to when we die. And so kingdom of God becomes a place. Heaven, it's the place we go to one day. And what we, we do is we read people in the church, read the disciples, say, are you at this time going to restore the, the kingdom to Israel? And we think they got it all wrong. Kingdom isn't about place. It's not about life here. Israel was confused about that. Kingdom is about heaven. It's about where we go when we die. It's about this thing we're looking forward to. And so... It trips us up. And what happens is we read Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So you're at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel. And we sit in judgment over the apostles. We clearly see how they're confusing things. They think kingdom is about an ethnocentric government. And we can look at that and see how that's not the case. We know what the kingdom of heaven is. The kingdom of God is. It's about where you go when you die. And so... What we end up doing is we presume that Jesus says to the apostles, no, it's not for you to know times or seasons when Jesus returns and everybody goes to heaven. That's how we interpret that passage. It's not for you to know when the return of Christ occurs and everybody gets their get-out-of-jail-free card who trusted him. We think Jesus' answer is, hey, guys, You're confused. Forget all that stuff about restoring the kingdom of Israel. You're going to go to heaven when you die. And in the meantime, what I want you to do is go and do the gospel thing. And what's the gospel thing? Well, let's tell people about Jesus. And when you do, they convert. And if they convert, when they die, they go to heaven. So people in the church have been reading this passage And we think Jesus says, no, the point of this story is to get to heaven. You don't know when that's going to occur. So what you need to do is go and tell as many people as you can how to get there so that they're ready when the day comes, either their death or his return, and they can go to heaven. But here's the deal. Nowhere in the book of Acts do we read anything about people going to heaven when they die. You can assume that. You can read that into the book of Acts, but you can't read it out of the book of Acts. It's nowhere in the book of Acts. That's not the point. So what is Jesus' answer? Jesus' answer is to the question, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See, we think they were confused. It's not about Israel. It's not about this earth. It's about this far-off Casper convention in the sky. It's about getting out of hell so you don't burn for all eternity. No, it's not about that, apostles. Instead, I want you to go around sharing the gospel so that people can get there. Here's what Jesus is doing. Are you, at this time, going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He said to them, "It's not for you to know the times or seasons. The Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria. What if the answer is yes? See, read read the those verses seven and eight as a yes, not as a no." Yes, now is the time I'm going to restore the kingdom to Israel, but it will not look like anything you're imagining it to look. Yes, I am going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Now, the exact details, the exact chronology of that, you can't get in on, sort of like Ecclesiastes. Nobody can know when it's the right time to laugh or dance. You know, that whole thing, there's a time for everything. Every event under heaven, there's a time for it all. But then the last paragraph at the end of the poem says, but none of us know what time it is, right? So you laugh at the funeral. You cry at the wedding. You take out a big loan on your house and get laid off work the next day. Isn't this the frustration of life that we don't know what time it is? So we're constantly being tyrannized by making decisions, built on assumptions. Jesus says, look, you can't know this, this kind of time frame like you want. But yes, I am going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And here's what it looks like. It looks like this. It looks like you being my witnesses. That's what the kingdom restoration looks like. Yes, Aubrey, you should add red pepper to the dish. But that doesn't mean a tablespoon. Yes, Aubrey, a hurricane is coming. But it has nothing to do with homeless folk. Yes, I'm going to restore the kingdom to Israel, but it doesn't look like ethnic Israel becoming the top nation and beating up the Gentiles the way the Gentiles used to beat you up. No, here's what it looks like. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like you receiving power by a gift of my spirit and you being authorized with that power to go as witnesses that I'm king. For, and then you keep reading in the book of Acts. So what if you were to read Acts chapter 1 verses 6, 7, and 8. And assume that the key answer to the key question that sets up the entire drama of the book. What if you were to assume that the answer is yes. And then you read the book with the, with the framework of I'm about to read what it looks like when God's kingdom moves through this earth. So what if you read the book of Acts as the drama of the kingdom of God rolling its way out from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, into the ends of the earth? What if you were to read the book of Acts as the story of the triumph of the kingdom of God? This is what the kingdom looks like. Now suddenly, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, there's a lot of comfort in that. Because you see that it's not a triumphalism. See, one of the things that some people in our culture, there there is this narrative among some Christian and anti-Christian folk that says mission is some power play of some Eurocentric culture going into another culture and stamping their cultural culture's values on that other culture so we live post-colonialism there's a lot of people in our culture today that read christianity in this nietzschean critique of power way that christianity is really about the powerful imposing their culture on the unpowerful so the word mission among a lot of people is negative It just means colonialism. It just means bootlegging your structures into somebody else's culture and destroying their culture. But the book of Acts says no. Mission is God's power at every moment of the way convincing the world that Jesus is the king. So when you read the book of Acts, it is God's power that is the secret driver of the plot. It is God when Peter's in prison that produces an earthquake that opens the doors that that gives Peter the ability to preach the gospel to his jailers. It's God all over the book of Acts driving the mission forward into Judea, into Samaria, into the ends of the earth. No, apostles, it won't look like ethnocentric Israel. What it's going to look like Is you being my witnesses. Now, here's the key. We think we know what the word witness means. In the church, we think, oh, you'll be my witnesses means I go around in a very obnoxious way and I tell people that Jesus died for their sins and if they don't accept that, they're gonna burn in hell forever. Don't you not wanna burn in hell? And a lot of us think, ooh, that's creepy. I don't want to go around talking like that. So the words evangelism, the words witness, we got like, you know, or I don't know enough. If somebody asks me questions, I can't really answer it. The word witness is used more than 25 times in the book of Acts. So let's let the book of Acts define the word witness. And over and over in the book of Acts, witness means your life looks like Jesus' life. It means you're a reflection of Jesus. It means you have a cruciform shape to your life. That's why we read out of the gospel. If you want to follow me, you have to do what? Take up your cross and follow me. So guess what happens to the witnesses of Jesus in Acts gospel? In, in the book of Acts. They get persecuted. And, and the great dramatic center of the book is, a, is Paul's own embodiment of the crucifixion. At the high point of the book, like at the high point of the gospel stories of Jesus' life, there is a terrible death. Paul is in a ship that succumbs to an enormous storm, and he in effect drowns and rises from the dead, in effect. So we see in Paul's life, we see in Peter's life, we see in people after people, when he says, you will be my witnesses, what he's saying to them is, I, by my spirit, am going to send you out in this world, and you're going to live lives like I lived. You're going to be misunderstood, but you're going to have a dogged loyalty to the truth. You're going to talk about me. You're going to explain the kingdom. You're going to do this over and over. And you know how people are going to respond to you? They're going to respond to you the way they responded to me. You're gonna, your life is going to be a witness of what my life looked like. You are going to be misunderstood. You are going to be persecuted. But the kingdom, just like it moved forward in my life, in your sufferings, the kingdom will move forward. So there is a movement of the gospel, a movement of the kingdom, but it's not triumphalism. It's not manifest destiny. It's not wipe out the American Native Indian population in order to achieve our rightful place. No, the way we move forward is our message has to look like our method and our method has to look like our message. So Israel, you're not going to get to go forward on war horses with swords beating up your enemies, telling them unless they bow down to you, you will kill them. No, you're going to do the opposite. You're going to move forward. People are going to respond with misunderstanding and persecution, and you are going to face it the way I faced the cross with humility and a toughness and a forgiveness and a love. And when you do that, the kingdom will, in surprising ways, move forward. Now, what is the kingdom of God? It's this. It is the sovereign, saving, healing, justice-bringing, hope-fulfilling reign of God in and through Jesus on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Jesus taught us to pray. He taught us to pray, God, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What are we asking for? We're saying, God, bring your justice, bring your healing, bring your your kindness, bring your compassion, bring life on earth to look like what life looks like with you in heaven. Jesus said, you're going to be witnesses to this. And then right away, what happens in the book? Right away, we see a group of people beginning to live their life like this. God wants to put the whole world the right way up. And the way he's doing that is through his people, the church, embodying the life of Jesus. That's the way the kingdom is restored. Jesus' answer to the apostles was designed to get them moving out into the world. To get them going to their jobs, going to their families, going to their neighbors as witnesses. That's a thick and comprehensive term. You witness by the way you live your life, by the way you respond to unfairness. How did Jesus respond to unfairness? You witness by the way you respond to unfaithfulness. How did Jesus respond to unfaithfulness? You witness by the way you respond to your body turning against you. How did Jesus respond when his body was dying, his faith was in God, the Father? He wasn't afraid of death. This is how the kingdom of God gets going. And in the weeks and months ahead, we're going to start going through the book of Acts with an eye to how did the kingdom of God move out in its day. And what I want us as a church to do is to ask this question. What does it look like in Harrisonburg as God restores the kingdom? As God brings his kingdom here in Harrisonburg. What does it look like in your life, at your job, in your struggles with cancer, in your struggles with a broken family, in your struggles with confusion? What does it look like when you're muddled and confused, but you still have enough of a faith to hold on with your fingertips? What does it look like to move forward? That's what we're going to see in the weeks ahead as we read through Acts. One last thing. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Part of what that means is that everyone needs Jesus. Everyone. It means you need Jesus. It means non-Jews need Jesus. It means, apostles, I'm not just for you. I'm for the whole world. And let me close with this. That's hard for us in our day. It's hard for us to imagine that one figure who lived 2,000 years ago in Israel is for the whole world. But that's the point Jesus is making. Look, if you are not a Christian, you need Jesus. Jesus is God's only answer. ...to this world. Jesus is the only God's only answer... ...to the the travails and the sufferings of the world. And so if you're not a Christian... ...if you're ethnically from a group of people... ...who don't follow the Christian religion... ...if you aren't from the part of the world... ...that's been talking about Christianity lately... You still need Jesus. And so if you are not a Christian, I invite you to figure out what Christianity is. I invite you to take seriously this figure, Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh. He is the only solution To what you need in life. If you are a Christian. I invite you. To take seriously. The fact that God's agenda is the kingdom. And the kingdom is about life on this earth. He wants you to figure out what the gospel has to do with your job. With your family. With your vocation with your life in every square inch. Let's pray.